1: Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for Rocks Across the Ponds. Welcome to Curling Series. Coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, my name is Ryan McGee, and joining me in Southampton, England is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, we've had fun during this Welcome to Curling series, giving people who might be new to the game a little bit more than they might have expected um, as they as they watch curling for the first time during the Beijing Olympics.
0: Yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. Hopefully, people have learned a little bit and we'll get into curling a bit more, either as fans or perhaps even as participants.
1: Yep. And today, we're doing a frequently asked questions show. So, what I did was I reached out to uh, my non curling friends and told them, you know, ask me anything about curling. No question is too dumb, no question is off limits. And I gathered together the ones that we probably got the most and some of the more interesting ones that we'll go over really quickly here today. Um, You know, just stuff that I hear a lot, uh, even while I'm teaching a learn to curl and some of it from, uh, you know, relatives who don't really understand why on earth uh, I would watch people throw rocks at a, at a target.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I got a lot of questions. I threw a couple of classic ones in there as well that I want to answer. I get them asked all the time. No questions too dumb.
1: So I guess one of the questions that uh, people who might be new to the sport, who have actually listened to all of our episodes, uh, might be wondering is, who are you guys? Uh, so Jonathan, do you want to kind of just give an introduction of yourself for people who have been listening to you for however many hours now at this point?
0: As, as what, as a curler or as a human being? I mean, I'm not going to define <laughs> you.
1: I don't think you should be defined as Jonathan the Curler, but, I mean, if you want to define yourself as Jonathan the Curler, you can.
0: <laughs> so I was born in Montreal, and I learned to curl there when I was 12 with my high school team. And I have moved around a lot of places since. I'm an academic, so I currently live in Southampton, England, and I've lived in England for the last eight years. Uh, I, I describe myself curling-wise as – a tweener. I get that term from uh, a curling writer called Guy Scholes who describes it as people who are very good club curlers who play a bit competitively, but they aren't they aren't quite or anywhere close, perhaps, to the people you see on TV. So, you know, I have a history of winning club championships, going out and playing like tournaments all over the place, I've kind of played in playdown processes in Canada, the US, and, and England. But I'm certainly nowhere near the standard you'd get uh, for someone you'd see on TV either. So but I've been a passionate curler for for 30 plus years.
1: Then for me, I actually got into curling much later in life than Jonathan did. I started when I was about 26 when Jonathan was one of the founders of the curling club in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, of all places. So Jonathan was one of the people who taught me to curl, and he was actually my first skip uh, when I got started. The you know the first you know captain of the curling team that that I was on, and you know we've stayed in touch ever since then. And now we do we do this show where we try to talk about curling growth and development, and really it's an excuse to talk to people from around the world uh, about curling. I am definitely not as good of a curler as Jonathan is. I'm definitely more of just a recreational curler and I now play here in Richmond, Virginia and I've been playing for about 12 years now. So what would you Jonathan, what do you say, what would you say is the most fun thing about doing this show?
0: I I like meeting people from all over the world who curl. <laughs> and then right off the bat we have something in common with them, but then we learn the curling's... I mean, in a lot of ways, it's the same problems and the same thing everywhere, but there's also a lot of unique challenges from place to place. So I've really enjoyed just meeting people from all over through this show.
1: Yeah, it's been hearing the ways that people uh, tackle the issues of how to grow and develop the sport, where they're from, um, and the unique challenges they face uh, in their neck of the world. We've also gotten to tell some really unique stories. We got to tell the story of the 1991 U.S. women's champions who went from playing in a shopping mall in Houston, Texas to representing the U.S. at the World Championships. And we got to tell the story of Oyuna Oranchimeg, who you will see representing the U.S. at the Paralympics and her journey immigrating from Mongolia to the United States and then getting into curling and making her way to the Paralympics. So that telling unique stories like that has been the other fun thing in addition to talking to people from anywhere from Estonia to Brazil to Nigeria to Australia uh, about how curling grows in in those areas as well as uh, clubs here in the US. We'll get into really the most common questions that I get and the first one is, why is it called curling? And Jonathan kind of answers this much more in depth in our history episode that we did in the Welcome to Curling series. But Jonathan, give us, the, give us the elevator speech on why it's called curling.
0: Okay, so there's two theories. So theory number one is that it describes the motion the stone takes. So you'll see people put a rotation on the curling stone as they let it go. And that rotation will cause the stone to break in a certain direction as it travels down the ice. And curlers call that the curl. So they talk about how much the stone swings. A bit like a breaking ball in baseball, like a breaking pitch in baseball. It'll kind of break in a certain direction. And we call that the curl. And it can move. You know, on TV, you'll see it move somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six feet. Perhaps if you're playing at Ryan's rink, it's a little bit less than that. But uh, <laughs> It'll move uh, negative it, it can four vary feet. from place to place. <laughs> it can move negative four feet because of the ice conditions. Poor Ryan. Um, so that's theory one, is that it refers to the motion of the stone as it moves down the ice. Theory two is that it's the, a word that was used in Old Scottish to describe the sound the stone makes as it runs over the ice. You'll also hear that rumbling noise of the stone kind of running up against the ice. And the theory is that in olden times, the Scots would call that a cur, a curli- curling sound, and describe that as the curl of the stone.
1: What is you, what's your, which is your favorite theory,
0: Jonathan? I like the old-timey Scottish cur sound, but uh, I think the curling, I think most curlers would say it's the, the curl of the stone.
1: The other most common question that I get, and really it's also a question that I had when I first started watching curling in 2006 during the Torino games, is are you a sweeper or a thrower? And the answer is you do both. So everyone is going to throw an equal amount of stones during the game. Most players will sweep However, the skip, who is like the captain of the team, he's going to be calling the shots. He's the one who doesn't really do a lot of sweeping, but everyone else sweeps.
0: Yeah, and one of of my favorite things about curling is on a curling team, there's four people, and on every shot, each player contributes 25% to that shot. So you're either sweeping, you're the strategist and, and calling the line, so telling the people what to do, or you're the thrower. So everyone's contributing an equal part to each shot.
1: All right, Jonathan. Give us the most common questions you get.
0: Okay, two. So, <laughs> the first one: Have you have you never been asked this? So, I get asked all the time: Do I need skates, or what kind of skates I use? No. Is that a year? You've never been asked that. No. No. When I was running the Oklahoma Curling Club, we'd get emailed all the time: "Like oh, I want to curl, but I'm a bad skater." So there's no skates in curling. Curlers have special shoes, which have on one of the soles a very slippery substance, usually Teflon, sometimes steel, and that's designed to let them slide along the ice. So you don't skate. There's no blade cutting up the ice. It's just Teflon on the ice to reduce the friction. And that's how the players move around the ice normally. Second question I get all the time is where do I keep my curling stones? Do I bring my curling stones to the rink? They must be heavy to carry around. So, Curlers don't own their individual rocks. They don't own their stones. The stones are always kept at the facility. That's because, first of all, curling stones are really expensive. So like a set, like a sheet of stones would be several thousand, if not 10,000 plus dollars, depending on the quality you're getting. And so each sheet of ice will have a dedicated set of stones to it. And the players basically go there and they use the stones on the sheet where they've where they're playing the game. So you you use whatever stones are out on whatever sheet you're playing on whenever you play a match.
1: All right. The next questions are ones that I got from my friends, and I tried to kind of group them together in uh, pairs that kind of made sense. So the, the first one is how does sweeping work? What does it do? And then what happens if you touch the stone while you're sweeping?
0: All right. So what does sweeping do? Sweeping does two things. So first of all, it heats up the ice. So the friction motion of the broom moving back and forth increases the heat on the ice. And this affects how the stone operates in two ways. First of all, the stone will lose its momentum more slowly. So this means the stone will go further because it's not slowing down as quickly as it would on running over a colder surface. The second thing is the stone will curl more as it slows down. So the other effect of sweeping in terms of heat is it carries the stone further past its break point or maintenance its break point, the point at which it starts to curl, meaning the stone will run a bit straighter. So they use it both for direction and for speed. The other effect, and this is the new effect which has been discovered in the last six, seven years, is that the, the sweeping also scratches the ice. And so you might notice some of the teams in the Olympics sweeping at different angles at different points in time. They're doing that to try to create micro scratches at different angles to get the stone to move a little bit more. So there's a, a technique called carving where you make the stone curl more. And there's also the reverse of that, which is straightening it up, where you try to make the stone curl a bit less. And so the scratching effect has become the kind of the new technique that's been added over the last six, seven years in curling.
1: And then if you touch the stone while sweeping, man, this... uh, All right, I'm going to try to explain the burned rock rule to people who are new to this sport. So this is where curling can have controversies is if this happens. So the burned rock rule, what happens if you you touch the stone while sweeping? Well, mainly everyone gets mad at you because then they have to remember the burned rock rule and how to implement in the situation that you have created. So the burned rock rule, if you touch a stone while sweeping, it's considered burned. If you touch the stone before the second hog line so before the stone is considered in play then the rock just comes out of play and the shot doesn't count and it's the next team's turn if you burn the stone after the hog line so after it's considered in play then here's where you can get into the controversy so the shot plays out and then the non-offending skip can either choose to take the result of the shot or they can remove the stone from play and reset the rocks as if nothing happens and then it's their turn to throw. Did I get that right, Jonathan? Yes. All right. <laughs> so that's where you can get into the controversy is there's a lot of etiquette in curling and really you know, baseball has a million unwritten rules, and I guess the one unwritten rule in curling is, you know, you don't use the burned rock rule to your advantage, even though the rule specifically says you can use the burned rock rule to your advantage.
0: So, I mean, I, if you want me to explain it a bit more, the rule is there to actually make sure that the team that doesn't commit the infraction is not put at a disadvantage.
1: Yes. And right. the only the only disadvantage they're at is it's considered bad etiquette to use it completely to your advantage, which is really not 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 the most fun situation to be in.
0: It's the, it's so the, where it gets controversial is where if you don't take if you don't kind of call the burned rock rule and the stone would disadvantage you had it been left to play out as it was, technically under the rules, you're completely within your rights to remove that stone. But a lot of people think that's the unsportsmanlike thing to do.
1: But yeah, before the hog line, rock comes out of play. After the hog line, the non-offending skip can choose what to do if you burn the rock. All right. (laughs) Up next, how does scoring work? So I'll keep it really simple. And this was basically it was explain it to me like I'm five. How does scoring work was the question that I got. So here's the deal. Curling game is divided up into ends. Ends are like an inning in baseball or a rotation where each team takes turns throwing the 16 rocks. After all 16 rocks are thrown, then the end is scored. So here's what you need to remember. Only one team can score per end. Which team has the rock closest to the very middle? That team is the team that has scored in the end. That team then gets as many points as they have rocks closer to the middle than their opponent's closest rock. So the most points you can score is eight. Usually you're going to score two, one, two, or three. That's usually anything above three, that's considered a big end in curling. Next, uh, The next question is about stones and how long do curling stones last? This kind of goes along with where do you keep your rocks? But Jonathan, how long does a a curling
0: stone last? I've just Googled it, Ryan. Uh, So (laughs) curling rocks are from an island off the coast of Scotland called Elsa Craig. And according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong, This was a formation in the paleogene era, which was 43 million years ago. So the correct answer is 43 million years. (laughs) 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 Coiling rocks are basically indestructible. Uh, and
1: they not if not if you're playing with some of our friends at at Oklahoma Curling Club, Jonathan.
0: <laughs> we we I, did have a rock. The only okay, the only time in my curling career I have seen a curling stone break is when we set up the Oklahoma Curling Club. The third week, I, I was so stressed out. Finally, Ron, who is my friend, helped me set up. Said we got to go have a beer while the games are being played. Everyone knows what they're doing now. Just take a break, Jonathan. We go off have a beer. I come back. And a curling stone's broken and nobody knew what to do. (laughs) Okay. But in most instances, it's very hard to break a curling stone. Like, that's the only time in my 30 plus years I have seen or heard of a curling stone breaking. Uh, What does happen is they wear down. So there's something on the outside edge called the striking band. And those are the two parts that hit each other. So over time that wears out and you can set it off to be reprofiled or resurfaced. And there's something called the running band underneath, which also wears out over time, but that can also be kind of fixed and ground down. So curling stones, the curling stones at a curling club will last 30, 40 years before they replace them, but they will get kind of resurfaced, you know, every couple of years, depending on on uh, the club and how much money they want to spend. All right.
1: What countries are good at curling?
0: Uh, that's a loaded question. I mean, so the traditional powers would be Canada because Canada has the most number of clubs, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1200 curling rinks and probably, probably 500,000 like regular club curlers. And then another one and a half million curl, at least once a year in some kind of like show up event. So they're the largest country. It's the it's on TV all the time. The most money for curling is there. The historic home of curling is Scotland. And so while they're not as large as Canada, they've basically set up international curling with Canadians back in the 1960s. So they're another traditional power. Sweden has had a very active curling history, so they're very good at it. They've basically been curling for over a century. Switzerland's another kind of traditional cur- curling power. they they developed more of an outdoor game up in the Alps, but they've also got a very good kind of indoor rink system. So the Swiss and the other Scandinavian countries. So Norway's been historically very good. the u s, interestingly, is one of the oldest curling countries and kind of early in the history of international curling, they had some very good results, but didn't really, Rate all that much in international curling, I'd say, until the last decade, where they've really started to put a lot of money and resources into it. And then we have some new emerging countries like Korea, China, Japan have all become very good. Russia has also become very good. And all of this is just in the last decade with the rise of Olympic curling. What are the
1: important events in curling outside of the Olympics?
0: Well, the World Championships, I'd say, is the second most important event, and that's held every year in the springtime. So late March or early April for the men's and women's world championships, the probably the highest tier there's also in curling, what's called the cash spiel circuit, which is a series of tournaments where the prize is money. The highest tier of that is something called the grand slam of curling, which has four major events, a lot like the Grand Slam in golf or in tennis, but they also have a couple of other events, varying from year to year, two to three other events as well. Uh, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the major cash portion. Historically, the, the cash tournament part of the season happens before Christmas, and then the what we call the playdown process, where teams enter a series of tournaments that lead to the World Championship, happens after Christmas. So that's the kind of basic structure. On top of that, there are what I'd call continental championships. So the oldest and most significant of these is the European curling championship, which goes back decades, and that happens in November. Until this year, there's something called the Pacific Asia curling championship, but in the next Olympic cycle, that's going to be re- uh, replaced with – is it going to be called the intercontinental or the pan-continental? Pan-con- the pan-continent- pan-continental. The pan-continental Curling championships, so that will have feature teams from Asia, the Americas, so both North and South America now, and uh, Africa, I guess, will be folded into that as well. So those will be the, these. That'll become the other major international tournament before Christmas as well. There's also something called the Continental Cup, which is which varies from year to year what it is, but it's basically I call it curling's all star game. So they normally have kind of high-profile teams from Canada, always from Canada, sometimes from the U.S., sometimes not, and then teams from Europe and Asia compete in something a bit similar to the Ryder Cup in golf, where it's like a team, team concept where multiple games add up to points for the two competing sides. And then you have probably the most prestigious
1: competitions in curling, which are actually the Canadian national championships for the men it is called the Briar and for the women it is called the Scotties. And as Jonathan said, there's a play down process. So for the most part, and there are a couple of wild card slots now for the Briar and Scotties, but you play down regionally and then you play down for your province. And then the provincial champions all go to the Briar and Scotties and play for their country's championship and this is it's on tv in canada it's even aired on espn three here in the states um really really great curling tournament um and yeah those are those are probably the two most prestigious and uh, both have been around what longer than the
0: world's too oh by a long shot yeah the briar goes back to the 1920s um The women's tournament, so the Scotties itself begins in 1980, but there's a a women's tournament called the Lassies that predates it that goes back, I think, to the early 1960s.
1: All right, Jonathan, one of the questions that I got, I actually got this multiple times. Who are the best curlers of all time?
0: Wow, that's a great question.
1: I'm going to say say Sandra Schmurler is my vote for greatest curler of all time. Can you explain who Sandra Schmirler is and then give us your, your greatest curlers of all time?
0: All right, Sandra Schmurler was a very good choice. So she dominated women's curling in the 90s. They won four Scotties. At the time, it was called the Scott Tournament of Hearts. I can't remember how many worlds, at least three worlds, two to three worlds. And they also won... Uh, the first gold medal when it was an official Olympic sport in 1998. So they basically dominated women's curling after winning the, and she was in her early 30s, early to mid 30s at this point in time. After winning the gold medal in 1998, Sandra Schmurler got diagnosed with cancer and very tragically passed away. I think basically two years, almost two years to the day after winning her gold medal. All right. So in the Sandra Schmurler Foundation, which is you see major fundraisers for this uh, at all like major Canadian curling tournaments is to give life-saving equipment for premature and critically ill babies in Canada. All
1: right, give us your, give us your greatest curlers of all time.
0: It depends on the era. All right. So it very much depends on the era. Cause I'm kind of a, a history geek. Uh, you can make a case that Ken Watson, who was one of the innovators of the slide and kind of dominated Canadian curling in the forties and fifties is a very important curler from that era. I'd say if I was to go with, like an all time kind of great rank, it'd be the Richardson's who back in the sixties won four briars in a row and kind of won the first major world championship as well. Uh, and they really perfected the hitting style, defensive style of curling that kind of dominated Canadian curling from the sixties through the early 1990s. Um, Probably on the women's side, an early kind of great would be Vera Pezer, who also run four of the women's championships back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then if you kind of move into the modern era, I'd say on the men's side, and then I'll stick with Canadians in the moment, probably Kevin Martin's kind of seen as the greatest of all time because he's won four Breyer championships. I think he only won one world championship, and he also managed to win a silver and a gold at the Olympics. And he appeared in three Olympics and just missed out on winning a bronze in his first appearance. So he's he's clearly the most decorated. He was also very influential in setting up the, the Grand Slam of curling and the professional tour. So he's often, I'd say most people of our generation would say Kevin Martin's the greatest of all time on the men's side. Women's side, if it's not Sandra Schmirler, the other obvious candidate would be Jennifer Jones, who's playing in the Olympics again this year. So she's won six Scotties, I think two world championships and a gold medal, and kind of won everything else there is to win in curling. Still active, so could still add to that, uh, that medal haul. Um, so that'd be kind of very good domestic ones. Um, internationally, that's a, that's a bit interesting. I'd say so for a couple of things. Really, the game is internationalized mostly over the last decade. And so I think there's a couple of active teams right now that uh, if they keep doing what they're doing, they may have a legitimate claim to be a world champion, to uh, be the greatest of all time. So on the men's side, Nicholas Adin, what's he on now? Five world championships?
1: At least, yeah.
0: <laughs> Five world championships and a silver medal, that's not bad. So if, if he wins the Olympics this time, I think he'd have a pretty serious argument with Kevin Martin for greatest of all time. Certainly on the men's side, the most dominant team over the last decade. Yeah. Um, Alina Patz, I think, on the women's side, still very young, four world championships already. If she gets a medal, I think she'd have a very legit chance to to kind of say she's one of the greatest of all time. Hasselberg's only turning 31. she's uh, She's got like a legit claim. Um, I say Rachel Holman, also only 31, has kind of won three Scotties, a world championship, been to one Olympics. She's probably got another 15 years in her career, and so she could add to her medal total and kind of rival Jennifer Jones for greatest of all time too. So I think there's a lot of people right now in this generation who could perhaps make that claim or are building that resume that are certainly worth watching that are competing in this Olympics. Yeah, if
1: if a Dean wins gold in Beijing, you're looking at five world championships, seven European championships, a world junior gold medal, and a... Winter University Games gold medal, in addition to the silver that he won in Pyeongchang and the bronze he won in Sochi. So that's a pretty good argument for greatest of all time. And then if Brad Gushu wins for Canada on the men's side, then you're looking at two four-person team gold medals. And that's also a pretty good argument for greatest of all time.
0: And there's another guy who might have a claim there, uh, Johnny Moe, <laughs> just got selected for Team Canada for mixed doubles, and he's won a gold medal with Kevin Martin in 2010, and then won the first mixed doubles gold medal in uh, 2018 with Caitlin Laws, and if he were to win the mixed doubles gold again, he might make have an interesting cl- uh, claim there too. And the other one is Caitlin Laws, who plays third for Jen Jones. So she's been to, this will be her third Olympics. And so she's won a gold in women's and a gold in mixed doubles, as well as a lot of Scotty's titles and everything else you can win. And she's also in her early 30s. So she's probably got another 15 years in her career too. So she's another person who could make the claim over the course of her career for uh, greatest of all time. What if John Schuster repeats? I mean, I think he's he's got a very interesting resume. He's certainly the greatest American curler of all time, and he's got a bronze and he's got a gold, so that's certainly kind of impressive. He does not have any world championships, and he hasn't really had as good of a resume on the cash side of things, right? So John's, John has had a knack for making it to the Olympics, and then he's had a, a very interesting history with the Olympics. And Ryan did a two-hour podcast homage to John Schuster. You can go dig up if you want to listen to the whole life story of John Schuster. So he's both finished last and finished first at an Olympic curling tournament, which I think is also an interesting claim to fame. Um, but if he if he double gold, that would kind of put him in there as uh, perhaps the Eli Manning <laughs> of curling. <Colonel> like. <Light. laughs>
1: That's actually a really good comparison. But yeah, as Jonathan alluded to, uh, in the early phases of the pandemic, so this was like April of 2020, we did a two-hour episode we called "The Ballad of John Schuster" that goes over the ups and downs of his career. That it was it was a lot of fun to make, especially in the early stages of, of lockdown there in 2020. And then finally, the last uh, frequently asked question that I got was, how can I follow curling during or after the Olympics? And there's a lot of ways because curling has a very – Vibrant community. Um, it you know it's small, definitely compared to other sports, but it is very vibrant, and there's a lot of ways that that you can follow the sport uh, on the internet. I recommend CurlingZone.com, which is run by a gentleman named Jerry Gertz, and really, you know, any result from curling um, in the last few years—that's where you go to find it. That's where you can go to find stats, in um, history of results. The Curling News, which was recently purchased by Sports Illustrated, so you can find it at si.com slash curling. But the Curling News, uh, probably for day-to-day coverage, is probably your best bet. You can also check out TSN and Sportsnet in Canada. They will also have coverage of uh, of curling year-round. And then kind of one of the newer websites, uh, doubletakeout.com, which is run by Ken Pomeroy, who also does the Ken Palm Ratings for uh, American College Basketball. That's a great place to go if you're a stat geek to check out um, how the teams stack up against each other. Uh, social media wise, I recommend following your country's national governing body as well as your favorite curling club and you know any favorite curlers or teams that you have out there. Um, especially follow your local curling club. They'll give you information on how you can try the sport. Uh, also, Gentleman by the name of Devin Haro, who uh, covers curling for the CBC. He's a fun follow on Twitter, especially, very passionate about his curling coverage. Um, there are plenty of other podcasts, too, and there's a ton that I listen to. Two Girls in a Game, uh, Mary and Lori are hilarious. Uh, the Game of Stones podcast, uh, Sean and Scott have become very good friends of ours, and I love the way that they cover the game. They're in Canada. The Curling Legends podcast where Kevin Palmer does interviews with curlers from the past is a great way to pick up the history of the sport. From the Hack is a podcast where they, uh, they interview curlers who have been in the news lately. Extra Extra In podcast uh, focuses on American curling. And then if you want to get really, really specific, there are two podcasts called Coaching Kids Curling, which talks exactly – about um, what the name implies which is kind of growing the game especially among the youth level and then the empowered performance for curlers podcast really focuses on curling fitness Uh, so if you want to get really into the weeds i recommend those as well Uh, two other follows that i think are great curling clips and they exist on twitter and youtube they'll do cut-ups of various curling shots and they are What's great is they are also very new to the sport. Um, they've discovered it uh, recently, but very passionate about putting you know clips of great curling shots as well as shots that you can then analyze. Like why did this team do this, or what does it mean? Why you know why are they using this term for this shot? Even so, uh, curling clips is a great follow, especially if you're new. And then another friend of ours who's been on the show goes by Twine Time, uh, James Runge. You can find him on Twitter, yeah, Twine Time, his website. And then also he also has a, a podcast where he interviews curlers. So I recommend following all of those people if you want to follow this sport during the Olympics and beyond. Jonathan, do you have any, any follows that, that you would suggest?
0: You can also mention Inside Curling, which is Kevin Martin's podcast with Warren Hansen, and they have a lot of the top curlers from the game on there talking about the game from the elite player's perspective. Uh, I like Curling Geek on Twitter. I think he's oh, kind yeah. of always doing uh, interesting things. I can't believe I forgot. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he, yeah, he's, so he's, uh, he, he's always kind of getting in there. I, and I think, honestly, if you follow curlers on Twitter – and you engage a lot. There's something called Twitter spiel, which is basically just curlers and curling fans talking about curling. You would be amazed at how easy it is to interact with high-level curlers. Like if you're I, I and I wouldn't just like hey, nag like John Morris or something, but honestly, some big time curlers like Colin Hodgson, he'll interact with curlers all the time if it's intelligent banter. I think if you just insult him, they'll ignore you or block you. But if you're you know, show your passion about the game and and uh you know give a good shout out you'd be surprised at how quickly uh you can connect with curlers through I think especially Twitter.
1: Yep. Everybody's very accessible. And uh if you want to yell at us, you can find us at curling podcast on Twitter. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So Thank you to everybody who took the time to listen to this group of episodes. We hope you found it at least useful, um, hopefully interesting, um, and even entertaining. But thank you so much for, for going on this journey with us. And please enjoy the curling. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.